In your holy and precious name, amen. How did you like that time of worship this morning? You know, we, we had that thing, announcements, call to worship, and then we got to worship in singing, Rejoice the Lord is King and Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Then we stopped and read a little scripture and had another prayer. And then we got to sing some more in worship through grace greater than all my sin and be thou my vision. Now we pause for a little bit and then a little later we'll get to sing again and worship. I hope by the smirk on my face you know I'm kind of being facetious here. Think about how and what we call worship when we talk about the church. Oftentimes we, we call only the singing part worship. And while that's part of it, it's not the whole. The way we talk about worship, though, and, and defining it as singing, guess what? We could call what happens in England Stadium in the fall worship because people gather around that one cause of Tennessee football and they sing and they sing loud. They sing louder than a church of 10,000 because there's a hundred something thousand of them singing Rocky Top to the top of their lungs. But the way we call worship merely singing misses the heart of worship. It misses the truth of what is really Worship. Again, singing is part of it, but the whole thing. From the moment we come in here and, and have that call to worship, through the scripture reading, through the prayers, through the preaching of the word, are all acts of worship. Because it draws us near to who God is in both spirit and truth. And that's what we see this morning. This teaching of what is really Worship in John 4, verses 16 through 26. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to go ahead and, and open your Bibles there to John 4, verses 16 through 26. Just a reminder, I know in the past we've been used to, to looking on the screen. I want to break us of that habit because I want to teach us to have a Bible open in our laps. Either a physical Bible or a digital copy of God's Word. If you've got a smartphone or a, a grandpad or an iPad or, or something like that, you can have God's Word open there and follow along. While you're turning there again to John 4, verses 16 through 26, we pick up this morning right where we left off last week. We looked at John 1, 1 through 15, and, and the introduction of the Samaritan woman. Jesus travels, he's weary, he sits down on the well, and he sees this Samaritan woman come. He asks her for a drink of water because he's tired, he's weary, he's thirsty. And then an exchange happens and he invites her that she should have asked him for living water if she only knew who he was. She begins to, to push back uh, on this reality, thinking he's talking about physical water. Of course, Jesus has already pivoted to spiritual reality, the need for spiritual things. But the woman to this point has not got it. But where we pick up this morning, she begins to, to have her eyes opened. So, oh, hear the word of the Lord from John 4, verses 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. 
For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, or called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here is what I think the main idea of these verses is. And Lord willing, what the main idea of the sermon is. True worshipers of God must worship him in spirit and truth. I know, straightforward, simple. I'm pulling straight from the text. But here's the further elaboration. And this true worship comes through Jesus alone. True worshipers of God must worship him in spirit and truth. And this true worship comes through Jesus alone. This true worship comes through Jesus alone. Very straightforward, too, for the two points we're going to break this up in. Point number one, worship in spirit. Point number two, worship in truth. Worship in spirit, worship in truth. Again, as as already stated, kind of the main thrust is coming here from two verses, verses 23 and 24, where again it says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But what in the world do these things mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? We're, we're going to break this down here in these two points and kind of unfold this. First, with this idea of worship in spirit. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Notice there in verse 20, uh, and just a, a brief segue here. We Normally, I like to go linear order, verse by verse, with these points. This morning, it's going to be all over the place. This, I think, hopefully will help you follow along better and understand it better. I know it did me as I was writing the sermon, and I hope it's helpful for you. But just be aware, it's not going to be straight through going 16, 17, 18. It's going to be all over the place. So so try and follow along with that, and I will try and help. But first, look there at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. There's confusion already by the Samaritan woman on what is worship and where must it take place. She thinks, okay, we Samaritans think it's this on this mountain here in Samaria that we we worship. We This is our right place where we gather for worship, where sacrifices are had and offered. But you Jews say it must be in Jerusalem, in the temple. Of course, we know the Jews are right. The Samaritans are wrong here, if we know our Bibles at all. 
But there's a bigger issue here. One is the misconception of what worship is and that it's tied to a place. The Lord had given a specific place for worship for a time. But Jesus now tells there in verse 21, he said, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. A time is coming in which no longer is worship going to be tied down to a place. He further elaborates this on in verse 23, which says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Worship is being defined as not a place that the hour is coming and it is actually now here in which this will take place. We'll come back to that hour is now here in a little bit. But see the fact that he's calling a right and true worship, not in the temple, not in the mountain there in Samaria, but in spirit and truth. So what does it mean and why this call to worship in spirit? Well, verse 24 unfolds this and gives us the grounds of why uh, worship must be in spirit. It says there in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does it mean that God is spirit? Is it certainly saying he is a spirit among many? No, he is spirit. This is defining him separately from you and I as man. God is spirit. He does not have an earthly, fleshly, mortal body. He's not like we are here in one location in Central City, Illinois, on this day and this time. God has been present with his people on this Lord's Day from the gatherings first beginning in Japan, Australia, China, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Morocco, Egypt, Uganda, to the eastern time zone, to here. He'll be present with our brothers and sisters as they gather in Hawaii. God, those pastors, Lord, you've given them everything to pastor in Hawaii, land of paradise. It's a joke. But, but you see, worship, worship must be in spirit. It must recognize rightly who God is. It must start with the fact that he is different from us. The temple was never intended to contain God. It was a representation of his dwelling with them in that place. It was showing them that he is holy. But the temple itself was nothing significant. It's not God stays here in Jerusalem in this temple and only in this temple. God transcends all of that. He's omnipresent. That means all places as has already been stated. He's all of these places. Therefore, worship can be happening in each and every one of these gatherings of God's people. No wonder Jesus teaches that worship must be in spirit because it must reflect who God is. And also, the fact that he's saying worship must be in spirit is a reality that it's a spiritual matter. We don't just come and worship of our own accord. We don't worship apart from new birth. We don't worship rightly 
apart from that anyways. Again, you could say there's a lot of worship that happens that's not spiritual. One of my favorite authors and pastors is David Platt. The way David Platt talks about worship in the South happens not on Sunday, but on Saturday. Many, as they go to their worshiping gatherings of sports and the idolatry of it, so much more time and energy is given to that than it is of Christian matters. But true worship is spiritual. One must be born again, as we've already seen. Look back with me to John 3, verse 6. John 3, 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. For the Samaritan woman to rightly understand what right worship is, we need to back up a few verses. And this is exactly what Jesus was trying to do in her heart. He was bringing her to a spiritual awakening of her need for spiritual things and especially for the spiritual truth of living water. Look back with me there at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Go and call your husband and come here. This seems like such an innocent command. Go and call your husband. But it's more strategic than that. Jesus is using this command to awaken the woman to her desperate need of spiritual things. Because apart from her awakening and need for spiritual things, she will never long for it. She will never come for it. I love what J.C. Ryle writes in his expository thoughts on the Gospels. He says, until men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. Until a sinner sees himself as God sees him, he will continue careless, trifling, and unmoved. Until men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. Until a sinner sees himself as God sees him, he will continue careless, trifling, and unmoved. And this describes the Samaritan woman perfectly. It describes many of us in our journeys to faith. We were unmoved by spiritual realities apart from an awakening to our need of Christ. Friends, it's no wonder the world rejects Jesus. It's no wonder many of us struggle with a, a law that is often cold and low of Jesus because we don't understand the disease which runs within all of humanity. We don't understand what must be exposed in us and of us and what is true about us to the extent that is reality. We like to think ourselves better than we do. We like to hide and conceal and put on an act. The Samaritan woman pushes Jesus back thinking he's the charlatan. The reality, folks, is she's the charlatan and so are we. We like to put on an act before humanity. And the Samaritan woman unveils this act for us. What's really going on not only in her heart but ours. Look there at verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I have no husband. Okay. Maybe Jesus misidentified her. No, of course we know that, especially if you were in Sunday school this morning. We've already looked briefly at some of this. Jesus responds there in the middle of 17. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have 
no husband. 18. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus takes this one truth of the woman, this one command, and calls her to go and do it, knowing good and well she can't. Because he knows the state of her heart from the very beginning. But he must unfold it. The woman tries to hide in her shame and her, her, uh, from her fellow uh, ladies in the town of Samaria by going to this well at noon. She tries to hide so that she can walk about and not feel more shame and more guilt of her sin. But here a stranger, a stranger knows what's going on in her. He knows every detail, nook and cranny of her heart. And he exposes it. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And don't let us give her a break here and thinking, okay, maybe they've all died. Because that's not what the context makes clear. Because it, it adds not just that you've had five husbands. The one you have with you now is not your husband. Is referring to sexual immorality. Adultery. She is living in sexual sin. This is a promiscuous woman in sin. The reason for her divorce is her adultery and sexual immorality. At the very least, as her new husbands would have come into her, they would have found that she was not a virgin, though she may have claimed to be. There was laws in the Old Testament that gave grounds for actual stoning of this woman. For some reason, maybe they didn't stone her. Or maybe it's because she had committed so much adultery that the husbands were able to legally put her away. And then she goes and tries to hide it and marry another. This woman's sin, her, her heart's being unfolded in this one command that she's failing to keep the seventh command. Do not commit adultery. Friends, maybe, maybe you think, oh, I'm safe. I'm safe this week because adultery isn't in me. I've never committed adultery. Well, guess what? We're helped out by the Heidelberg Catechism in question 108. Actually, we're harmed in it because it reveals the truth of us. It says here in, in the question, the question is, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? Answer, that God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. That means that one thought is adultery. This is what Jesus himself taught. Or maybe you still think, okay, I'm clean. Well, guess what? One breaking of any of the Ten Commandments in the slightest way, that evil word you spoke about a neighbor or a friend, even in the secret of your heart, is sin and the breaking of God's word. That gossip, that slander is sin. That lie that you thought, well, you know, it's, it's just a little white lie of deception. You know, I didn't really harm anybody. Is it that bad? It's breaking of God's law. That longing for what your neighbor has of, of covetousness, that is sin and you're guilty. That evil word you spoke of God or careless word you spoke of him, it's blasphemy. And therefore leaves us guilty in our sin. We can't escape the breaking of God's law. We can't escape the fact that we are broken sinners. 
This is the reality being unfolded for the Samaritan woman. It's the reality that should be being unfolded for each and every one of us. Not one of us stands here innocent. We're like the Samaritan woman, one that does not deserve Jesus' grace. We're like her in the fact that we're guilty, that we should be being cut to the heart as our sin is exposed. Because the reality is, just like Jesus knew every nook and cranny of the Samaritan woman's heart, friends, he knows every nook and cranny of ours. He knows that thought that you're having right now, some of you, of this doesn't apply to me, and it's a lie, that thought is. He knows the very thought of, of the person that you just can't stand and harbor hate in your heart. He knows that thought, that hatred, which is guilty as murder. He knows that thought of lust he knows that thought of blasphemy within and said you know what i don't know that i really really can trust god he's untrustworthy i'm not talking about the doubts of you're just struggling to fight for faith i'm talking about the the blasphemous this god is not good or trustworthy god is just a meanie bully god those are more the thoughts i'm talking about god knows every one of these and he's pulling it back to unveil the coldness of our hearts and our ongoing need of spiritual things. Friends, until we see this spiritual reality, we're never going to hunger for the medicine of the gospel. There's a reason some of us struggle to rightly worship God because our reality of ourselves is so warped. We think too highly of ourselves instead of seeing that we are nothing but broken sinners. We're broken sinners who desperately need the spiritual nourishment that Jesus offers. He offers the Samaritan woman this living water. But it's not until she sees her disease that she can awaken to that truth. And the reality is our sin is like a cancer. We've all known somebody that we've loved who has battled cancer. It's an evil, ungodly disease. It takes and eats up the body within, slowly decaying it. If you've never watched somebody die of cancer, it's a torturous thing. Their mind is one of the last things to go and they say things that they don't even understand. They can't comprehend such as, I know you loved your grandmother more than me. My own grandfather and the reality of how cancer had eaten up and warped his mind said that to me as his last words as a 10-year-old. It wasn't true. But you see, this is how sin deceives us. It's, it works within us to destroy us. And unless we see that the only cure of this sin is not moral living, it's not cleaning ourselves up, it's only found in Jesus, we'll never run to that gospel medicine. Consider here with me the reality of what Ryle writes once more. He says, never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as Savior until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. Ignorance of sin is invariably attended by neglect of Christ. Our ignorance of sin will cause us to neglect Christ. It is only when we see our sin rightly and acknowledge it 
that we will draw near to Jesus and take of that gospel medicine, the good news offered to us, that he came to take away the sin of the world. That we will cherish him and long for that spiritual living water, that spiritual bread, which is Jesus. He is the bread of life. It's only then that we begin to crave him, to long for him, to rightly worship God in spirit. So to worship in spirit is the necessity of spiritual birth, of spiritual awakening. And may we be awakening just as the Samaritan woman was in ongoing ways. Notice what, what happens here is, is the woman is exposed of her sin. And she brings her to confession and acknowledgement in verse 19. It says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Sir, I perceive to you that you are. Or a prophet. She knows whoever this is before. She still doesn't recognize it's Jesus at this moment in chronological order here of the verses. But she sees that he is one sent from God to declare the word of God so that she may be convicted and cut to the heart. And it works. Notice what happens is, as she is convicted, she now begins to long for spiritual things because she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Remember, she had no interest in spiritual things before. She had no spirit interest in taking of the string eating water. In fact, she says, are you greater than Jacob, our father? She puts him to doubt. Then even as Jesus says, I will offer you living water that you will never have to come and draw from again. She mockingly there back in verse 15 had said, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She simply doesn't want to have to come out to the well anymore to draw water. That's all she does. But now, having been awakened to who she is and her sin exposed, she's convicted of that sin, being drawn to repentance. Now she can begin to crave spiritual things such as worship. And what does she find? Jesus teaches her that it's not about a place, but to worship God in spirit and truth. Before we can even understand the truth of what worship is, we must see it's a spiritual reality. To see the spiritual things. Part of what we do here at Central City Baptist Church as we gather is so that we can grow in spirit. In spiritual things. We want to build up the body of Christ to grow in the deep spiritual things. Not the fleshly. Brothers and sisters, we will all die and our bodies will be as grass. I'm not concerned with your earthly lives other than how we are living them spiritually. I could care less if we all have rich mansions, if we have it easy here on earth. The goal is to grow in spiritual truths and spiritual realities, to grow in spiritual understanding and spiritual living, to live as Christ. But how do we do that? The Apostle Paul helps us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what does it mean to worship in spirit, to worship in the fact of 
every aspect of our lives, being that of a living sacrifice to God, living out acknowledging his holiness, living out acknowledging who he is, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is to worship in spirit. This is what he says. This is spiritual worship. To not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed with the renewing of our mind. And that leads us to the second part of this. We must worship in spirit to be born again, but we now also must worship in truth. Look again back to verses 23 and 24. It says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spiritual realities, a spiritual awakening is a necessity for a true and right worship. But it's not left in isolation. If it was, then spiritual realities could be kind of what we feel, what we think, what we feel in our spirit. It means we could have 30 plus different views of what worship is this morning. But the reality is right and true worship. God is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. They're not isolated or or against one another. It's not step one, step two. It's both of these realities of worshiping in spirit and truth. But what does it mean to worship in truth? Well, look, look back again to verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? Dropping down to the first sentence, or part of the sentence in 23. But the hour is coming. So far in the gospel, according to John, when it's talked about the hour, it's talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what the hour has been. So, so at first glance, we think, okay, it's talking about Jesus' coming death and resurrection here. But notice what it is added there after, but the hour is coming in verse 23 and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. He's not at the cross. He's not at the tomb. So how is this hour here if it's simply referring to his death and resurrection? True worship happens not in a place, but in a person. It happens in the person of Jesus Christ. We see this unfolded in in what the Samaritan woman says in verse 25. She says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. John interludes and, and translates this for us. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritan woman has enough spiritual understanding that, okay, the Messiah is the one who's going to teach us to rightly worship. He's going to be the one to teach us these things. And then Jesus reveals himself to her in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals to her, look, the one who you said is going to tell you these truths, he's standing right here. I'm the Messiah. Something that he doesn't review to his Jewish 
friends and neighbors, but he reveals here to the Samaritan woman. Particularly because the Jews misunderstood Jesus as Messiah. They thought he was coming as a revolutionary king to, to free Israel, literally. Jesus was not concerned about political Israel. He wasn't concerned about delivering them from the Romans. He was concerned about delivering them from the curse of sin and death, which is far worse. Jesus, though, to the Samaritan, doesn't hold this back. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's come to take away the sin of the world. I'm the one standing before you, teaching you now what is right and true worship. And it's found in me. True and right worship happens only through Jesus Christ. It is Christ-centered We've already seen John teach us this twice. In John 1.14 we read, And the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.17, three verses later, adds, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come, came through Jesus Christ. We're going to see this again later. Jesus verified this once more in John 14, 6. It says there, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. True worship must happen through Jesus, who is the truth. There is no truth apart from Jesus. For it's Jesus who comes to perfectly reveal the Father. It is Jesus, that he tells Thomas that you have seen the Father because you have seen me. Hebrews says that in, in the last or later days that the Lord spoke through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken through his Son, Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He's the perfect revelation of God the Father. So there is no understanding of what it means to worship in truth apart from Jesus. It True and right worship must be in Jesus and Him alone. Or you will not understand what it means to worship in truth. In fact, we, we see this even further helped to make clear that, that worship in truth is, means knowledge. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, the, the location issue wasn't a matter of her just thinking that worship happened only in a place. It was also the fact that the reason the Samaritans were wrong in the first place had to do with knowledge. The Samaritans only had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in that, in particular, in Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 6, it says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. So they saw in these two verses that, okay, God's going to choose and make a habitation in a certain place. But they didn't know where. So they had to speculate. So what did they do in the midst of the speculation? Well, they turned back to the law, the, the five books that they had in Genesis 12, 6 through 7. They thought, okay, the Lord first, first spoke and showed Abram the promised land here, which we read there in Genesis 12, 6 through 7. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, 
to the oak of Morah at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Do you want to know where that was? Samaria, the mountain that the, the Samaritans thought that right worship was to happen upon, where Jacob would come and, and establish a well later on. They presume that this is where the Lord wanted to rightly be worshipped. Presumption is a deadly thing. Because presumption is based on our thoughts and our understanding. And remember, God is spirit. Therefore, he doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't move like us. Shechem was not where God called his people to worship. He would later give the revelation... Uh, that it was to be in Jerusalem, there in the city of David. A temple was to be built, and God would dwell among them there for a while. Presumption leads to wrong worship. I love how Calvin puts this. He says, unless there be knowledge, it is not God that we worship, but a phantom or an idol. The Samaritans were worshiping Something, a phantom or an idol of who God was rather than the, how God had fully revealed himself in the truth of Scripture. True worship must be grounded in truth, starting with the truth of Jesus and all that he commands of what worship is and isn't. Worship must be grounded in truth, the truth of who God is, to rightly come before him. Consider back to what happened when the, the people of Israel first built and, and held sacrifices there in the tabernacle. Moses, or Aaron's two sons went in and authorized worship with unauthorized fire. And they were killed. God takes seriously what he tells us about worship and how it's to look. Christian, we don't have room to choose how we want to worship and what we think is good and right worship. Our worship must be grounded in truth. Therefore, we must see how we're called to assemble together as a body of believers for worship. Again, the whole of the gathering is worship. From that call to worship till that benediction is a form of corporate worship. That means the body joined together. When you hear me use corporately, I'm not using that because it's corporate language of a corporation. Corporate means that the encapsulated body together, many members making up one body. That's what corporate means, the whole together, not little segments. Ladies, I, I, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. When you gather on Tuesday mornings, I know you love your Bible study time, and I'm not picking on that in itself. But that's not the church. That's part of the church, but it's not the church. Same thing with the men. When we gather on Thursday night, that, that is part of the church being gathered, but it's not the whole. The whole is this together. Men, women, young, old, mixed in together, worshiping God and being stirred to unity, to worship in one spirit, one truth, one baptism. You know, imagine if our worship is shaped more by truth than our own opinions and preferences, how the body of Christ begins to flourish around that. When we set aside our opinions for the sake of one another and, and building one another up. When you come to worship, 
Do you come to worship in truth? Or I only want worship to be what I really like and enjoy, what I feel moved by. You know, I didn't really feel the Lord's Spirit this morning. You know, essentially what that saying is, we didn't sing the songs I liked. I didn't like something said in the sermon. We, we may not think that. We may be trying to cover it up and put it nicely. But that's essentially what's going on in our hearts. So are we really worshiping in truth? Brothers and sisters, let me challenge you here. The very fact that God's word is read in a service is an act of worship in God's spirit and presence. Where God's word is read and proclaimed is worship. And it should be worshipful. That's why we give most of our time to the preaching and teaching of the word. It's not just because I like to hear my own voice. If, if you're looking to be worshipped simply thinking that, okay, we've got to find the perfect preacher, I, I ain't it. I am not it. If your worship is based on what you hear from me, you've missed the boat. Worship is about the truth of God's word coming off the pages and saying, this truth teaches me who my God is so that I may now go and rightly live. Let me give a practical example here from, from the Psalms. If worship was merely a means of preferences and a means of uh, picking ourselves up and, and dusting ourselves off and, and forcing ourselves to come and, and ready to worship, this psalm couldn't happen. Hear the words of Psalm 42, verses 5 through 6. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. The soul is cast down in turmoil. If you think worship is based off opinions, you don't come out of a song like this. If you think worship is based off pulling yourselves up and dusting yourself off, worship will not happen in this state. Worship only happens because the psalmist, the sons of Korah, remember who God is and the truth of who he is. Right worship will take place as the truths of God are proclaimed and goes deep within our hearts, reminding us who he is. That he is the sovereign one, that he is the one who is the creator of the heavens and earth, that he is the one who holds it all together, that he is the giver of life, that he is the one who gives his son the whole spirit to be poured out, that he is the almighty, that he is the one who is inviting us back to himself by the giving of his only son on the cross. Friends, it's those truths about God that drive worship, right and pure worship comes from the depth of God in his character, his nature. But it starts with us having to learn God, to know God. Those who know God little and shallow, their worship's going to be little and shallow. Those who want to rightly worship God are going to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of who he is. Wanting to know more about his holiness. Wanting to know more about his righteousness. Wanting to know more about his grace. 
more of understanding how we have rebelled against him and yet how his grace has been poured out in Jesus and the fact that Jesus has come to be an atoning sacrifice for us. And yet we shy away from those things too often. It's these truths about who God is that will take us to a deeper love of God and a deeper worship of God, seeing his infinite worth. Friends, let us see that worship takes place in spirit and truth. We must be born again to a living hope in Jesus through the power of the spirit and the work of the word. But we also need to be grounded in truth if we are to rightly worship God in all of our lives. This means individually as we go throughout our weeks, we need to to be grounded in this right worship in spirit and truth. As you go throughout your week, I hope you are worshiping God in everything you do. Worship God by being committed the best employee if you are in the workforce. Be the best employee in your career because that brings honor to God. If you're retired, don't use your retirement to be lazy and slothful and a gossip and a slanderer, but be active in how can I use this time to pour into others? How can I come alongside and encourage? Ladies, some of you I know love to be on the phones. How can I use that time to make sure I'm encouraging one another? To make sure I'm not spending as much time gossiping in in everybody's lives, but hey, how are you doing? How's your week going? How can I pray for you? Hey, I read this in God's word this week and I thought it might be an encouragement to you in your situation. That's worship. As we labor for the good of one another rather than tearing down one another or things that we are so tempted in our humanity to do. But then as we gather again for worship, making sure we're present rarely together as the body of Christ to worship together. For how else Unless we come together to worship our God in our one faith and one baptism and one hope, can we stir one another in these truths? The corporate gathering of worship is essential to the life of the church and to the life of its members. Because it's here, we're able, as, as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians and Colossians, to sing these truths to one another. I, I don't know about you, and I, I'm not trying to do this if... if you, some of you loved the piped-in music and the different things we were able to do with it. I love not having it, and here's why. It's not because necessarily songs. I like not having it because I can hear you. Whether you believe it or not, you all have become a better congregation singing-wise since we stopped piping in music and drowning you out. You actually sing and can hear different ones of your voices come out. And you know, as as we sing those songs, we're singing truths about who God is and building one another up. Think about it. This morning we sang, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Our Lord is King. We, We get to proclaim that truth and exalt God in it. We get to pray there, be thou my vision. Lord, you be my vision. You guide my ways, my steps. We get to pray in song together. We're going to sing together in a minute ago. Jesus paid it all, reminding ourselves that Jesus has paid it all. The way to the life is in Jesus. That's worshiping in truth. See how worship happens individually and corporately in everything we do. And let's continue to stir one another to worship in the spirit and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your grace.